We can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. We're closing out this book. We have one more um, message left. And then we will add this to the other books that we've taught through. But uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 16 this morning. Let me turn this down a little bit, a little hot. And uh, last week we covered verses 1 through 4, dealing with giving. And uh, today we're talking about a wide door that's opened. The Apostle Paul says so much here in, in our text and he lets us know that uh, there is an opportunity. There's always an opportunity for the gospel to go forward. And it involves um, circumstances, but it also involves the will of God. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about the will of God, how to know what it is and how to apply it to our lives. And so I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word. You've been sitting for a little bit. You can stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse 7, for I do not want want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Father, we pray that you'd bless this word to our hearts this morning. Help us to understand this text and apply it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about realizing the importance of financial support. We talked about collecting the offering as Paul did. And today we're talking about remembering the issue of the will of God. The will of God is a very important um, subject matter in the life of a believer, or it should be. And this is what Paul wants us to understand here. Um, very clearly, he, he starts off in, in verses 5 and 6, and he talks about um, the outcome depending on circumstances and support. And you notice his, his, his phrases are not definite. He says, perhaps I will stay with you. I might visit you. Maybe I'll spend the winter. What's he saying? What happens to him depends on the circumstances that God orchestrates before him. It's not just up to us. But he also says it depends on the support. Because he points out, he says, hey, I may want to do all this stuff, and even the Lord may want me to do this, but if there's no support... For me to do it, I may need some help on my journey, he says, wherever I go. Uh, so it's, it's based on the outcome of God's will in our lives and in our church and in the world. It's based really upon the circumstances and the support that he provides through his people. But the second thing here I notice is that not only the outcome depends on the circumstances and support, but the orders must come from the Lord Look at what it says in verse 7 there very clearly. It says, if, what? The Lord permits. Uh, One thing you need to understand, the marks of a a true Christian are many. 
There's a lot of things that you can notice in people's lives that you'll say, oh, that, that marks them out to be a Christian, such as things like love for God or repentance from sin or humility or devotion to prayer or devoting to living for God's glory, loving others, separation from the world. You can go on and on. But nothing more clearly summarizes the, the character of someone who is genuinely converted, someone who is genuinely saved, than a desire to do the will of God. Would you agree? I mean, if God has saved you, why would you want to do anything else (laughs) other than his will? In Psalm 40, verse 8, David said this, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Ask yourself this morning, is it a delight for you to do the will of God? In Psalm 143, verse 10, He adds this, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Are we asking God to teach us what he wants us to do? Or are we just going off, you know, with our own agenda most times? Jesus even said in Mark chapter 3, verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother, referring to his family members there when he was confronted with that. He's saying, wait, if 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 you're concerned with doing the will of God, then I count you as alongside of me. He declared in John seven seventeen, if anyone is willing to do his will, the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. They were asking about his authority and where his teaching comes from. And then a little later in the Gospel of Matthew, he gave a very what I would call sober warning about the will of God. This is just a haunting passage for most Christians because he gives a sober warning in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they're calling Jesus, Lord, Lord, I'm here. But they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Based solely on that. But he says, but he who does what? The will of my Father is the one who is in heaven and will enter. Um, That is so, so vital. The greatest example of someone in the Bible doing the will of God was God himself through Jesus Christ, was it not? That's what he declared in John 6, verse 38. He said, I came down from heaven, what? Not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is our Lord. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the God who created everything. When he came down from heaven, he said, hey, I'm not here. I'm not, you know, uh, Jesus Christ superstar. I'm not here to garner all the attention, the focus. No, I'm here to do my father's will. The one who sent me. Sometimes we sing in our church that, The old hymn, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. And it's a good reminder. It says, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. We get that messed up so many times. We think it's the other way around, but it's not. We're we're the clay, he's the potter. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. I think the problem with so many of us in our lives is just that. We're unwilling to wait. 
we're unwilling to yield and we can't be still. <laughs> I mean, somebody told me, you know, the stillest part of my week is when I'm sitting in church listening to you preach. Other than that, man, it's just go, 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 go. And so the Christian, the born-again Christian, the Christian that's been transformed by God's grace is a Christian who is a person who is consumed with understanding and doing the will of God. On the other hand, though, on the other hand, you have to really consider a constant disregard, a constant, um, you might say, disinterest in the things of God or in God's will. Someone who's not interested is... That's certainly a mark of someone who still has a lot of pride in their life. They still have their sin that's undealt with. They're still under the worldly influence. Um, When you disregard the will of God, it's it's really the same as saying, you know what? I'm the sovereign ruler over my own life. (laughs) That's what you're saying when you're disinterested in what God's will is. And that's such a, a prideful attitude that is the complete opposite of what we're called to have when it comes to saving faith. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 tells us what we were like. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now turn over in your Bibles to James. James. We're talking about God's will. And I don't think you can talk about God's will without going to this passage in James. Um, When you talk about the will of God, it always usually focuses around the question, well, is this what the Lord wants? What does the Lord want? People want to know, what does God's will consist of? What, what does God want from me? And as you turn to James 4, we'll begin in verse 13. But remember, James has already pointed out in his letter here in verse 6 that God is opposed to those who are proud. <laughs> He's opposed to the proud. But what's he do for the humble? What's he give them? He gives them grace. But gives grace to the humble. So with that as our context, look at what it says there in verse 13. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and build, or such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mere vapor that appears for a little time and is vanished. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, if you want a wonderful message on the will of God and you want a wonderful message on James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, I encourage you to listen to John MacArthur's message. I'm using this little outline here. We're not gonna, it's not really the context of our study this morning. But I, th- I thought it was so telling and so important that, you know what, we just need to, to, to look at these couple verses together. And he points out in, 
in his sermon and his, his, his notes and his commentary and stuff, that there's different approaches to the will of God. And one of them is the foolishness of ignoring God's will. The foolishness of ignoring God's will. Look at what he says there. Come now, you who say. Or the ones who are saying. That's literally what it says. Indicating that these are people that habitually live without regard for God's will. They don't care. God's not in their mind. They just get up every day and they do whatever they want. They're not concerned with God's will. Come now, you who say, who have, who have this kind of an attitude. We mentioned this on Wednesday night in our Bible study, but I read a, uh, those two lines out of uh, Henley's poem, uh, Invictus, where he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. <laughs> no, you're not, God says. You're not. That's a lie. And so the underlying original language here, when he says the one who's saying, it means something that's based on reason or logic. It's lego. It's just the word to say. And, and what does James do? He, he rebukes those who, who, who habitually go through and really come up with their own plans and their own purpose and their own thing in life as if God didn't even exist nor care. And this illustration that he uses here, he chose one that's in the text of James there that's very familiar to the Jewish readers because they understood what it meant to have businesses and they were successful businessmen and they would go around to different parts of the countryside and they would look for places that were flourishing in trade so they can open up their business and they would say, I'm going to go there because that's where all the people are. You know, you don't want to... a, a shop, a grocery store, way up in the hills of Emerald Hills somewhere that nobody's going to pass by or see. Where do you want it? You want it down on El Camino, right, where all the traffic is. Well, that's, that's what's the Jewish mindset back in Paul's day. They, they understood what he was saying. And wise planning and, and strategic uh, thinking when it comes to businesses and opening up, opening up businesses, you need that. That's what makes a business successful. And there's no spiritual principles that are violated by anything here this businessman said just because he says, hey, I'm going to go and do these things. That's not a problem. There's nothing wrong with planning that. If you're going to open up a business, you have to have a plan. I think we'd all agree with that. It's not that they did extensive planning. That's not what James's point is. The point is, is that they totally ignored God <laughs> in their planning. Totally. God was not part of their agenda. You look at the text, they chose their own time, their own location, their own duration, their own enterprise, their own goal. We're going to do it today or tomorrow. We're going to go to such and such a city, and we're going to spend a year there, and we're going to engage in business. Literally, we're going to travel there to trade our business. And, and then he says, you know what? And then we're going to make a profit. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having goals. But it's a little presumptuous when you leave God out of your planning. And so we don't want to be caught. We don't want to be of the mindset that foolishly ignores God's will. That's not a wise place to be. God created you. God loves you. He has a purpose. He has a plan for you. And that plan becomes real when you trust in Christ, his son, for your salvation. 
He changes your heart and, and all your stuff is left behind. And all of a sudden now you're just captivated by, with doing God's will each and every day. Well, secondly, he points out in verse 16 the arrogance of denying God's will. The first is the wrong response because they don't even acknowledge God's will, right? That's kind of clear. But there are those who they acknowledge that God exists and they acknowledge that God has a will. But they're unwilling uh, to bow to it, so they just deny it. Uh, it's, It's a very arrogant attitude. John MacArthur says those in the first group are practical atheists, living as if God did not exist. Those in the second category are self-theists, refusing to submit the uncertainties of life to God. They set themselves, their own goals, and their own wills above God. We have to be careful with that. There's a lot of us who do just that. We boast. We have confidence in things that we've planned A month from now, a year from now, we have no idea whether we'll even be alive tomorrow. That's not guaranteed. And so all such boasting, all such confidence is evil, he says in the text. And it leads to problems. It leads to problems because people get all depressed when their plan doesn't turn out. Have you ever planned for something? You plan for a trip and everything, and then everything just falls apart. I mean, you don't go, wow, I'm so happy. My whole vacation's shot. No, you're dismayed. You're troubled. Why? Because your plan didn't come through. The expectations weren't met. And you can grow upset. You can grow embittered. And what does God say? It's okay to make plans, but you know what? You need to live as if you're living each day, one day at a time. One day at a time. As the Lord wills. Sure, we plan, we think about it. But we understand in the end, at the end of the day, all of our plans are what? They're subjective to what God wants. It has to be that way. Orders must come from the Lord. And sometimes, guess what? Because they come from the Lord, we have our own plan. And guess what God does? He changes the plan completely. And he takes you in a different direction altogether. And sometimes we don't want to see that. We have blinders on. We want to do what we want to do. We're, we're self-centered. We have our own agenda, and it's wrapped up in everything that we like and what we want. And we don't see God's purpose. We're unwilling to see it. I mean, sometimes God wants you to touch the lives of other people that you would never even be around if it wasn't for him changing the purpose and the plan of the day. Maybe that flat tire on the freeway where you, know, you break down and somebody, some stranger stops and you start up a conversation. And all of a sudden a door opens and you're sharing Christ with this person. Or whatever circumstance it may happen, God changes things all the time to carry out his purpose, his plan. We need to think about those things. So we see the foolishness of ignoring God's will, the arrogance of denying God's will. But you also see here in verse 17 the sin of disobeying God's will. This is a a third negative. These first three are negatives. (laughs) Ignoring, denying, disobeying. 
You affirm God's existence. You acknowledge the supremacy of his will. But then what do you do? You proceed to disobey it. (laughs) And, And James here rebukes these people. And he says, wow, you know, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, what is it? To him it is sin. See, these are, these are people in the third group here that, that know God's will. They affirm that God's will is right. That word right describes what is qualitatively good, morally excellence, worthy of honor. It's upright. There's no argument there. In the broadest sense, God's will is expressed in all the commands and the principles of Scripture. A lot of times people say, well, I want to know what God's will is for me. It's it's not hard. You just go to the Bible. Just go to the Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3 tells, tells us that it's God's will for you to be saved. Period. It's God's will for you to be saved. He, he wants you to be saved. His desire is that you would repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says that it's God's will that we be filled with the Spirit of Christ. We be controlled by the Spirit of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8 says, not only are we to be saved and Spirit-filled, but we're to be what? Sanctified. What's that word? It's a big theological word. It just means kind of set apart. You're holy. You're living in a way that's different. You're living totally onto God. 1 Peter 2, he says, not only saves, spirit-filled, sanctified, but also submissive. He desires us to be submissive to him. Just because we're Christians, we don't get to go out and do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. And then the last one is suffering. Do you know that it's part of God's will for you to suffer? We don't. We don't ever think about that. I mean, especially with all this craziness in the church that's going on about health, wealth, prosperity, you know, suffering. What are you talking about? I'm going to have my best life now, whether God wants it or not. That's part of the problem. And, and to the person who's willing to do these things that God has outlined in his words, you're willing to be saved, you're, you're willing to be spirit-filled and sanctified and submissive and, and deal with the suffering that God brings into your life. Guess what God says? Other than that, go do whatever you want. It's not rocket science. The Bible says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will what? He will give you what? The desires of your heart. See, so many of us are fearful that if if we do what God wants us to do, that somehow, I mean, I went through this when I was in Bible college. You know, I was in Bible college and I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just went to learn the Bible. I didn't want to go into youth ministry. I didn't want to be a pastor or whatever. But I started hearing some of our speakers in chapel and some of them were missionaries. And I'm like, oh God, please. (laughs) I don't know if I could last in the jungles of Papua New Guinea without a shower Without a, without a bathroom, I, uh, the bugs. And I don't know if I could do that, Lord. I, I mean, and, and for probably months, I was kind of par- paralyzed because I thought, I don't want to do something like that. And yet, I know very well that God would give you the grace to deal with it. But I can tell you right now, it wasn't a desire in my heart. It's not a desire in my heart now to go down to Papua New Guinea and, and even what we saw on the video. 
That's just like, ugh. I mean, it's neat to build a house and I could do it for a week, but to live there months on end. And you talk to Bob and Noby and they say, wow, it's, it's hard. I mean, every day you're, you're covered, covered with mosquitoes. Covered. You go to bed and you get in your little mosquito net and they're just outside the net waiting to break in. And that wonderful river that you saw those men jumping into. Nobody was saying, she goes, yeah, we have the river and that's kind of where we kind of freshen up and stuff, take a bath. But the sad thing is because we don't have a shower in the place they were staying before they built the house. You go down and you jump in the the river and you've got to go through all this mud to get there. As soon as you get out of that river, you're covered with silt. This brown, smelly, mucky stuff. And then you've got to trudge back up (laughs) to your, your little house you're staying in. And you take it, hopefully maybe you have a bucket of of, of fresh water there and you can kind of take the bucket and dump it over your head and dry off. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's that's not a desire in my heart. You know, I mean, give me a shower. Give me some pressure that's coming down and soap and, you know. But you know what? When you do these other things, God will give you the desires of your heart. And if he led you down that path, you have to have faith that he would give you the grace to deal with it. Those who know God's will are responsible to obey it. You're responsible to obey it. You don't get a pass. And if you fail to do so, the Bible calls it what? Sin. That's what he says. You're not going to find any comfort in the fact that maybe you're not committing overt sin. Because just leaving God out of your plans, just leaving God out of your life, just leaving God out, his will out of your, your, your thinking, that's sin for the believer. The sin of disregarding and disobeying God's will is one of omission, of not doing what one knows is right. Well, you also see here in verse 15, and this is the one positive point that James kind of brings up, is the blessing of acknowledging God's will. In contrast to all this negative, he said sinful responses to the will of God. There's also a positive side to this. Instead of practical atheism or self-theism or just flagrant disobedience to the will of God, he says to his readers, if the Lord wills, we will do this. I mean, I remember in, in youth ministry, so many times I'd hear parents, you know, talk about their kids and they're bragging on their kids and how smart their kids are and, you know, oh, they're just wonderful kids and, you know, honorable kids and they can do anything they want. And I'd always say, no, they can't. What do you mean by that? Yeah, they could. My little Johnny, he's so... I said, stop, you're missing the point. You know, I don't think that's even a wise prayer for a parent to pray for their children. Let them do whatever they want. No, let the will of God captivate their heart. So what? They want to do what God wants them to do. Not even what the parents want them to do. What what does God want my child to do? How does God want my child to be serving him for the rest of his life? So important. It's so important. The blessing of acknowledging God's will. The will of God is central to all their plans, people that have this this mindset. They acknowledge God's will. They affirm his sovereignty over their life. 
I mean, that's the only reason we live. It's the only reason we're alive is to fulfill the, the word of God, to fulfill God's will in our lives. I mean, stop and think about it. He controls everything. He controls life. He controls death. It's, he says, you know what? It's appointed unto you when you're going to die. Do you know that? He, he knows the date you're going to die. I mean, by his grace, he doesn't tell us that date. I don't know if that would be good or bad. I thought about that. Would, it be good? would you want to know when you're going to die, the day you're going to die? I don't know. I, don't, I probably wouldn't want to know that. I'd probably be more interested in how I'm going to die. You know, I mean, that, that would be a little more nerve-wracking. But it's important to realize that there is a day coming. That one day you will, believe, you will breathe your last breath, your body will cease, and the heart will stop the pump blood, and you will be dead. And the good news is, as a believer, what? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I mean, I'm out of there. I mean, I'm done with this mess, right? So he controls all that. He also controls everything people do and all the circumstances of life. Our God is sovereign over all these things. So for the Christian, doing God's will is what? It's an act of worship. When you wake up in the morning and you have your day planner and you, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not saying don't plan. We need to plan. We need to make, be good stewards of our time. But we also have to acknowledge, is, is this within God's will? And be willing to hear, no, that's not what I want you to do today. You know, I, think, I think I'm going to change it up here. It's to be done from the heart as a way of life, recognizing that he's the one who energizes us to do it anyway. We don't do this on our own. And that's what Jesus said in John 13, 17. He, he, he really pronounced a reward a, a, for those who are willing to live by God's will. He says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Well, guess what? You know. <laughs> Certain aspects of God's word, just hearing part of this message here this morning. And it's up to you to live in obedience to that. So we see the outcome depends on circumstances and support. We see the orders must come from the Lord. But in verses 8 and 9, we see here that these opportunities that God gives us, they're opportunities to guide us, to show us, okay, what what do you want us to do? Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. That's a pretty definitive statement. So his plan was to do that. And then he gives us the reason why. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. One thing you need to understand about the opportunities that God uses in your life to guide you, it may be a job opportunity, it may be a relationship opportunity, it, it, it could be any sort of opportunity. They are created by the extent of them. It says they're a wide door. A wide door. Some translations re- translate that a great door. See, some of us are trying to go indoors that have been shut in our face. And we're still pounding on the door and we're trying to kick the door down. Why? Because we're stubborn. We're headstrong. We want to do things our way. We want things to to be done the way we want them done. We want to go through the closed door anyway. We're not willing to give it up. You know, stop and think about that. That's not living by the will of God. That's not walking by the Spirit of God. 
What is that? That's sin. That's, that's, that's walking by the, 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 the flesh. It's walking by our own desires and our own plans. And we all do it on occasion. God is the one who opens these doors. They're created by the extent of, of these opportunities, but they're also continued by the effectiveness of them. Notice he calls that work an effective work. It means, you know what, we're here in Ephesus. And you know what, it's not that we don't want to come see you, but I'm here in Ephesus and God has opened up this incredible ministry for me here in Ephesus. And as much as I'd like to come and see you folks, I can't right now because there's just too many opportunities to serve the Lord right here. He's basically telling his readers, you know, that I'm living in the time. I, I, it's not that I hate you. I don't, it's not that I don't want to come see you. But you know what? I can't right now. God is doing a great work here. And he's opening up this wonderful opportunity before me. And Paul's basically saying, if I would turn away from that opportunity that God has afforded to me, it would be sin to me as a servant of Christ. So the opportunities we Need, they need to guide us in the will of God. We need to understand they're created by how extensive the opportunity is. And sometimes it seems like we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Because we got our own agenda, we got our own plan, and it's not fitting, and we're not willing to admit it. And we need to stop that and, and turn to Christ and tell, us, tell him to change our heart. Well, they're also controlled by the Lord who opens and shuts the doors. Notice it says there is this, this door is opened up unto me, Paul says. What's interesting, when you get into the original language here, that word opened unto me, it's passive. It's not Paul opening this door. God's opening it for him. Because it's only God who opens and shuts doors. Always remember that opportunities will guide you. And those opportunities are controlled by the Lord who opens and shuts doors. I mean, it takes a lot of the stress out of it, to be honest with you. I mean, when you're, when you're applying for a job and you think it's all about you, and you don't leave any room for God, when you get denied that job and you get turned down, what? you're crushed. But if you walk into an interview going, man, you know why, Lord? If you want me to have this job... <laughs> Make my mouth say the right things. Help me to be a blessing to these people. And you know what? I, I kind of want this job, but I don't know, Lord. It's up to you. I don't know about you, but I would sleep a lot, a whole lot better with that kind of mentality rather than thinking it all depended on me. It's the Lord that opens the door. It's the Lord that shuts the door. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what our attitude should be. And that's clearly taught in Revelation 3, 7 and 8. He says, it's the Lord who, who opens a door, and no one will shut it if the Lord's open, open that door. And guess what? Uh, the one who, who shuts it, if the Lord shuts a door, you're not going to open it. And if the Lord opens a door, you're not going to shut it. So it's just a whole lot easier to say, okay, God, here I am today. What do we, what's, on, what's on the agenda, Lord? I mean, here's what I've come up with, but I want to yield to you. So the outcome depends on circumstance and support. The orders must come from the Lord. The opportunities that the Lord affords will guide you. And then lastly, 
And this is a hard one, but it's true. The opposition will always be there. Look at what he says in verse 9. What's he say? There are what? Uh, Yeah, many what? Adversaries. There are many adversaries. Not that, hey, you know, you might have a couple people that disagree. No. The Apostle Paul said, no, there's many adversaries. There's many people who are going to be against you. I mean, in this present age, there's no such thing as any kind of ministry being authentic without problems, without opposition. If you don't believe me, talk to my brother Ken. I mean, talk to some of the other men in the church. Why? Satan will see to it. If you're doing what God wants you to do, Satan's not going to sit back with his arms folded in, in his in his recliner and go, okay, I'm just going to let this fly. No, he's going to get busy. He's going to begin to work. The Lord himself said in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. You might want to look over your shoulder if that's the case in your life. A work that has little opposition from the system of Satan is one that's doing little work for the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. (laughs) But the good thing is, you know what? Paul wasn't intimidated. He wasn't getting ready to pack his bags and go home. He wasn't intimidated by opposition. As a matter of fact, he he really flourished because he understood it. He realized that the the devil's greatest opposition is to the work that the Lord is doing. So if you have the the devil's opposition in your life, then guess what? You're doing something right. Now, with that being said, you know, we don't want to be obnoxious. Um, We don't want to be unkind. We we don't want to be uh, caustic. And say, yeah, everybody hates me. Good, I don't care. You know, we don't want to have that kind of attitude. That's a callous heart. That's a, that's a callous attitude. Uh, but there are many adversaries. They're out there. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us so. He says, finally be strong in the Lord, verse 10. And in the strength of his might, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, he's out to get you. He's not giving you a pass just because you're a Christian. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, <laughs> that's why you want to take up the whole armor of God. So that you will be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one that come your way. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I'm an ambassador in chains, he says, that I may actually declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I don't think Paul was intimidated by his adversaries. He said, bring it on. Why? Because Paul understood having adversaries in your life, it's a test of your character. See, the test of your character is what what it is that takes to stop you. Not what keeps you going. What does it take to stop you from doing what God wants you to do? Not what keeps you going. I mean, when you get the little pat on the head at the door and, oh, wonderful sermon, Pastor. That's just beautiful. Oh, you were like an angel up there preaching. Well, yeah, I mean, feed your ego is what it does. I always just say, well, praise the Lord. But the test of your character is what what it takes to stop you. I mean, some people are shut down by the littlest, slightest little opposition. They just retreat. They sound the retreat. Oh, yeah, I tried to show the Lord at work. And, oh, everybody got upset. I'm never going to do that again. Why? Well, they're not going to like me. They spoke against me. I mean, I think that's kind of... What God is showing me, they even wrote me a lot of nasty email or a text. Oh, I could barely stand to read it. I have a full folder of emails and correspondence from people who don't like me. They never met me, but they don't like me. I have another smaller folder, unfortunately. <laughs> It's full of positive things, cards that you guys have written me and things like that. And some people say, well, what? just throw out that stuff. No, I don't throw it out. I find myself reading the critical folder a lot more than I do the positive one. Examining my own heart. Because I understand that, you know what, if I have a rough piece of wood and I want it to be smooth, what do I do? Do I take a feather and go like this? No. What do I do? I I get a piece of sandpaper and I start sanding that, that roughness out of that wood because I understand that friction, even though it heats the wood up, it probably doesn't feel that good for the rough wood, but you know what? It's going to round off all the, the rough edges. We know oysters, right? Where pearls come from, they come because they're irritated. The sand and the the oyster. And that's how they become so beautiful and so smooth. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. We have to understand, beloved, that God is making us, you, me, into what he wants us to be. That's what he's doing. And when you serve the will of God, and you do what he wants you to do, the way he wants you to do it, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people that say, you know what, I don't like it. you know what? It's not their favor we are seeking, is it? No. No. I play the piano for the audience of one. 
preached the word for the audience of one. Yeah, hit some sour notes along the way. That's where the grace of God comes in. He covers it up. See, we want to be well-pleasing to God. Amen? That's what we want to do as believers. We want to get up every day and say, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. And if your heart's not there, I, I pray that God will soften it. Because I can tell you, it's not fun being in the other place where you have your own agenda and you have your own goal and your own wisdom and your own mindset and you're going down your own path trying to manufacture something so everybody would look at you and go, oh, wow, look at this. Look at how well this is. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in doing what God wants us to do day by day. And I, I pray and I hope that's in your heart as well. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness and your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for the gift of salvation through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and the provision that he's made for us on our behalf, that it's through his death, his his life, his resurrection, that we can have eternal life. Lord, we know that you want to bless us more than we want to be blessed. Father, show us the opportunities that you want us to see. Guide us. Lead us. Sometimes we're, we're blind to your will, and we just do whatever we want to do. I know personally, sometimes I don't see anybody around me. I'm, I'm so busy with something, so focused on something. And so, Lord, we, we all come to you and we ask for your help. That we might be able to share your love, your wonderful message of the gospel with people around us, even here, our neighbors in this community. That people would come to understand that, that Christ is real and that he, he has done something for us. He's gone to the cross and died in our place for our sin. And if we'd just be willing to come to him and forsake ourselves, he would forgive us. He would transform us. Lord, help us to be givers, not takers. Help us to be consumed with blessing other people. Helping other people, not ignoring them, not neglecting them. Help us, Lord, to have a burden for the loss that we heard about this morning through Sam's report on missions. Help us to learn to pray for those people group whom you have created that have never once heard one word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet we hear it all the time. We turn on the radio, we turn on the TV, we bookstores and all kinds of things that we can get resources from. And yet there's people that have never even heard one word of God's word, God's truth. Lord, I thank you, I praise you, and I know, Lord, that some of us are more familiar with these things than others here in this room, and some of us may not be sure of, of their relationship with you. But I pray, Lord, that they would understand that, God, you're right there. And they just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin to the Savior. That's a prayer that you'll, you'll answer, Lord. You'll forgive them and transform them. And old things will pass away. Behold, all things have become new.
I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you bring us to that place where we put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope. He is our only Savior from sin, death, and hell. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.